church. We, our church, one of the great joys of our church is the remarkable faithfulness and uh, endurance of our, of our staff. Um, we've had several of our staff hit key anniversaries in recent years, and we just want to step out this fall and celebrate those, honor those people for their, their faithfulness to our church. So this month, we, we really want to encourage and honor Rob Craig. Rob has been our outreach pastor for, he hit the 20-year mark a while back, and uh, yeah. You know, for, uh, for Rob to put up with you and me for 20 years, that's pretty impressive. So um, we, thank, we thank God for you, Rob. And uh, by a way to encourage Rob, there, there's a little basket and a table in the corner in the lobby. You can write, a, write him a card of encouragement. You can, you can write on the back of your worship guide and drop it in there if, if you want. Um, he's accepting season tickets for the Tar Heels in there. Basketball only. He's not interested not interested in football after this week, but basketball he's still holding out hope for. So, uh, But if you'd like to encourage and love on Rob a little bit, give him a hug and you can drop by that table this month sometime and express your appreciation there. Um, what I'd like to, to do today as we continue our series in, on being mentored in prayer from different people who prayed in the Bible, I want to show you a little one-minute clip. I'd like you to just watch what happens, and then um, we'll unpack it together, all right? Now, the violinist in that video is a guy named Joshua, Joshua Bell. And uh, on that day, back in 2007, uh, he's just a youngish guy in jeans, long sleeve t-shirt, Washington Nationals baseball cap. And so he, he enters the subway from a small case. He removed a violin, placing the open case at his feet. He shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change of seed money. He starts to play. And for the next 45 minutes in the D.C. Metro on January 12, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert as a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notes. Now, if they had paid attention, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist he is. They might also have noticed the violin he played. It's a 1,700-ish Stradivarius worth over $3 million dollars. Just three days before this, Joshua Bell sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100 and up. 
Later that year, he received the Avery Fisher Prize as the best classical musician in America. So he's playing in the subway in D.C. on that day. Three minutes went by before anybody noticed. Sixty-three people had already passed when finally there was a breakthrough of sorts. The Washington Post is writing this. It says a middle-aged man altered his gait for a split second, turning his head to notice that there seemed to be some guy playing music. Yes, the man kept walking, but it was something. A half minute later, Bell got his first donation. A woman threw in a buck and scooted off. It was not until six minutes into the performance that someone actually stood against a wall and listened. Things never got much better. In the three quarters of an hour that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance at least for one minute. 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. That leaves the 1,070 people who hurried by oblivious, many only three feet away, few even turning to look. See, on that day, on that subway platform, there was greatness right there in the subway on our nation's, of our nation's capital, and almost no one took time to stop and notice. I'd like to adapt that observation for our purposes this morning this way. In the most unlikely places, even perhaps especially the hardest places, when we go to prayer, there is greatness in the room. And you should stop and drink it in as you pray to the one who is the greatest greatness in the world. You know, the, the lesson that we want to look at today really doesn't come from the Washington Post experiment with Joshua Bell. It comes from the life of an ancient king of Judah named Hezekiah. His story is told uh, repeatedly in the Old Testament. It's told in 2 Kings, it's told in 2 Chronicles, and it's told in Isaiah. He gets remarkable press in the Old Testament. So if you want to open your Bible somewhere, I would suggest 2 Kings chapter 18 is a good starting place. And I'll keep you uh, abreast on the screen up here of the, the other scriptures we use. But uh, let's bow in prayer, and we'll look at Hezekiah's prayer together. Father, have mercy on us. Show us your greatness so that we might pray aright. Grant us this mercy by your spirit and your word. Now, in the name of Christ, your son, we pray. Amen. So, like I said, he, he gets an unusual amount of press in the Old Testament. Um, and for good reason. You're going to find out he's not just any king. Listen to this description from 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah, all having to do with false worship of God. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah. None after him? 
nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. You know, I, uh, a number of years ago, I, I did something I don't normally do. I spoke at a kind of a classical, traditional revival. It's not my normal venue for speaking. But I went to this, this the, the pastor there was a former North Wake guy, and I went to speak. And they meet in a 160-year-old building. It is uh, you know, a remarkable historical structure. And what he told me was, whenever you even talk about a building program, you get a lot of pushback because this is historical. I've been here. We've worshipped in this building. My, my great-great-grandfather worshipped in this building 160 years now. So um, you can imagine what it was like. You read about that bronze serpent that Moses made. Okay? They'd had that thing around for over 1,000 years at this point in time. And they were offering incense and, and offerings to that snake. And, and Hezekiah just just bust it to pieces, just destroyed it. You know, back in 1977, there was a lady, her name was Maria Rubio, it's a true story. She's, she's cooking breakfast for her husband, making a burrito, and she looks down and she noticed in the burrito a thumb-sized imprint of the face of Jesus in the tortilla. Now, needless to say, the article says, Eduardo went hungry that meal as Maria told family and neighbors about the miraculous event. Um, despite, it, she says, it happened in the small town of Lake Arthur, New Mexico, 40 minutes south of Roswell, for whatever that's worth. Um, despite all the objection of scientists and skeptics, the holy tortilla quickly developed a solid fan base. In two years, by 1979, over 35,000 people had visited... Uh, bringing flowers and photos of sick loved ones. Ms. Mrs. Rubio quit her job as a maid to attend full-time to the hastily constructed Shrine of the Holy Tortilla that was eventually located in a shed in her backyard. Okay? Now, Hosea, or not Hosea, Hezekiah would tear that shed down. He'd, he'd eat that tortilla. Okay? <laughs> He's, he is not tolerating any idol worship whatsoever. He is, he is that guy. Um, the writer of 2 Chronicles adds these descriptions to, to our understanding of who Hezekiah was. Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, uh, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. You know, but it's interesting, just after these verses that describe what an incredibly righteous guy Hezekiah was, um, we read this. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. So, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, they get invaded by, by a neighboring army. Okay? Comes against Hezekiah and God's people. That's not the way things are supposed to work, right? I mean, 
faithfulness isn't supposed to lead to an invasion. It's supposed to go like this. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, they all lived happily ever after, right? Is that how the story's supposed to go? Um, but our stories, they don't go like that, do they? Um, not most of our stories. Bad stuff happens to really good people all the time. Invasions follow faithfulness. Um, so we can learn something here. And you need to tuck it away for the hard days. There is no necessary direct correspondence between hard times and God's appraisal of your life. Hardship is, does not always come from sin. Sin can reap a lot of hardship, but not necessarily so. Sometimes amidst the greatest of faithfulness, invasion comes. Sometimes I think it's especially when we're faithful that hardship comes. Whether it's cancer or loss or any kind of invasive trials, it can happen at the best of times. So Hezekiah is faced with this disheartening news of an impending invasion. So he turns and he encourages his people with these words from 2 Chronicles 32. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. Now this is a perplexing statement, as we'll see as this unfolds. So he explains to his people what he means. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah is just reminding them, hey, when we pray, there's greatness in the room. There's greatness in the room when we pray. I love the way some of the older translations of the Bible put it. It just says, there is a greater with us than with him. There is a greater with us than with him. Now let me take you back back to the subway. Okay, there's a guy named John David Mortensen. He's on the final leg of his daily bus to Metro commute from Ruston, Virginia. He's heading up the escalator. It's a long ride. One minute, 15 seconds if you don't walk. So like most everyone who passes Joshua Bell this day, Mortensen gets a good earful of music before he has his first look at the musicians. Now like most of them, he notes that it sounds pretty good. But like very few of them, after he gets to the top, he doesn't race past as though Bell were some nuisance to be avoided. Mortensen is the first person to stop. He's the guy at the six-minute mark in the video. It's not that he has nothing else to do. He's a project manager for an international program at the Department of Energy. But on the video, you can watch Mortensen. He gets off the escalator. He looks around. He locates the violinist. He stops and walks away, but then he's drawn back. He checks the time on his cell phone. He's three minutes early for work, so he settles against a wall to listen. Mortensen doesn't know classic music at all. Classic rock is as close as he gets, right? But there's something about what he's hearing that he really likes. He doesn't know anything about major or minor keys. He just says, whatever it was, it made me feel at peace. 
And so for the first time in his life, Mortensen lingers to listen to a street musician. He stays his allotted three minutes as 94 more people pass briskly by. And when he, when he leaves to help plan contingency budgets for the Department of Energy, there's another first. For the first time in his life, not, not quite knowing what has just happened, but sensing it was special, John David Mortensen gives a street musician money. See, John David Mortensen, on that day, recognized that there was greatness in the room, even there at the subway station of all places. Now, Hezekiah is reminding his people that in the hardest of places, when they pray, there is the greatest greatness in the room. Okay? Overwhelming greatness. Tim Downs is an author. He, he wrote uh, a book called Head Game. And in it, he's explaining what PSYOPs are. He says PSYOPs stands for psychological operations. It's a form of warfare, he says, as old as the art of war itself. An early example of this can be found in the battle strategies of Alexander the Great. Now, on one occasion, when his army was in full retreat from a larger army, Alexander gave orders to his armorers to construct oversized breastplates and helmets that would fit men who would be seven or eight feet tall. Okay? And as his army would retreat, he would leave these items for the ensuing army to discover. And when the enemy would find the oversized gear, they'd be demoralized by the thought of fighting such giant soldiers, and they would abandon their pursuit. Down says, Satan likes to play head games with us too, often leaving us demoralized by fear or doubt. We assume Satan is bigger or greater than he really is, and the quickest way to thwart our enemy's psyops, he says, is to gaze upon the greatness of our God. And this is exactly what Hezekiah is doing for his people. He tells them in verse 8, With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. There, there is a greater with us than with him. So there's greatness even in the darkness of rooms, even in the shadow of the most threatening of invasions. When we pray, God is with us. He is with his people. Listen to how the psalmist writes about it, Psalm 95. He says, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, today, if you hear his voice, we be saved. They would, they're going to need words like this. They're going to need encouraging words that remind them of the unrivaled greatness of their God because the king of Assyria is coming to lay siege to Jerusalem. And in advance of that, he sends hecklers in verse 9, and they stand outside the city wall and loudly spew threats at the people uh, in kind of Monty Python fashion. Okay, Let me, um, 
Let me read it to you. It's, it's a bit lengthy, but I want you to hear what they were saying to the people about their God. Okay, this is 2 Chronicles 32. Well, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. And do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servants said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And, and they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of man's hands. Now, 2 Kings tells a similar story. You should read these. Later today, you should read these passages in their entirety. It's a fascinating encounter. Um, but 2 Kings gives us a little more colorful sense about what they were yelling up at the people on the wall. In 2 Kings 18, the Rabshakeh, who's like the commander, uh, chief heckler guy, he says, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Okay. That's the threat. That's what's a coming if you... If you continue to resist the king of Syria. Are you familiar? Some of you who are business people, you may be familiar with uh, what a BHAG is. It is a big, hairy, audacious goal. There was a business book a while back that presented this as one of a, a critical motivation in business for people to achieve high, highly in their work. A big, hairy, audacious goal. A BHAG. What they didn't tell you about is something called a BHAG. A big, hairy, audacious threat, which helps you not accomplish anything in your work. And that's exactly what's going on here. Um, they stand there with an earshot of the walls of the city, shouting out these behats, big, hairy, audacious threats, that are designed to do the opposite of what Hezekiah was doing, just making God small in their eyes, making them 
question whether he's really able to deliver them from such a hard place, to doubt that he's really that great a God. Now, uh, big, hairy, audacious threats, b-hats, have not gone out of style. You know that. You still feel them against your face sometimes. They're not always so big, and maybe they're not always so audacious. We might call them um, elbats, elbats, little bothersome, annoying threats, okay? But they, they eat away at you. They chip away at your faith. Um, and these voices are often inside our own heads, it seems, and they say things like this. You're never going to rebuild that marriage. You're never going to be able to make that payment. You're never going to be able to get out of debt. You're never going to be free from that sin. If, if your God is really able to deliver you, wouldn't he have delivered you by now? You recognize those voices. They're the same voices that they were yelling at the wall outside of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. And I want you to watch how his faith plays out in the face of those threats. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 20. This is what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. So as you read the stories, there are two things that he does. In the face of this flurry of threats, uh, first he grabs a buddy and has him pray. That's the very first thing. Now it just so happens that his buddy is the great Old Testament prophet Isaiah, right? Not a bad choice to have somebody praying for you. Um, and Isaiah writes about this instance, and he records what Hezekiah's request to him was like in Isaiah 37. Messengers from Hezekiah come to Isaiah. They say, thus says Hezekiah, this day, because of the threats, right, and the siege on Jerusalem, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace, Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. But it may be that the Lord your God, Isaiah, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, who, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. And our God will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And he asks, he asks Isaiah to pray. And just catch the wisdom of having a praying friend intercede for you on the darkest of your days. It's the first thing that Hezekiah does here. He gets a like-minded, like-faithed like friend, and he says, pray, 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 pray. Now, the second thing he does is he goes to prayer himself. And the content of that prayer Isaiah records, but so does 2 Kings, and we'll look there. It goes like this. Just listen, and then we'll unpack it. This is Hezekiah's prayer when he hears the threats coming against the city. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. 
but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are are God alone. Let me walk back through that. Let's just look kind of line by line at, at Hezekiah's prayer in the face of this great audacious threat. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter containing the threats from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. I love that picture. He just took the letter and he laid it out before the Lord as though he wanted the Lord. He's showing it to the Lord. More likely, he's giving it to the Lord. You know, Hezekiah, if you read the accounts, he's tried other means to stop this invasion. He stripped the temple of all of its gold and gave it to Sennacherib to buy him off. And Sennacherib took all the gold and went back on his promise and renewed the siege. So now, he's before the Lord, and he just, he just lays the letter out and gives it to the Lord. And verse 15 says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah is declaring that greatness is in the room when he's praying. He is praying to the Lord, the master, the God of Israel, our God, not some foreign God, our God, who's enthroned above the cherubim. Now, cherubim were some kind of amazing angelic beings. They were carved in the Ark of the Covenant, the central place where God met his people in worship in the Old Testament. Right? There were two cherubim, and nobody knows exactly what they were. They were some kind of angelic beings, but everyone agrees they were really impressive creatures based on the description we have in the Bible. And God is seated above them. He's enthroned above them. He's exalted even above the cherubim, he's saying. Hezekiah is praying to the epitome of greatness. He says, God, you alone are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. And again, singular exaltation above all nations, their gods, and their kings. So when, so when Sennacherib threatens him and he says stuff like, don't you know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Hezekiah knows He's not praying to one of those gods. He is praying to the one God who is the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. And that includes Assyria. That includes where these invaders are coming from. God is their Lord over all that they bring. He's praying to the maker of heaven and earth. And as maker, he is owner. He has rights to everything. He has authority over all creation. See, Hezekiah gets that he is praying to the greatest greatness. There's greatness in the room when he prays. There's greatness in the room when we pray. We pray to the same God. Every time we bow our heads, bend our knees, our prayers arise to this same God. 
Listen, listen to the language again of the prayers of the psalm. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I'll say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The New International Version of the Bible, if you did a quick check, it refers to God as Almighty over 300 times. Time and time again, repeatedly, um, he's referred to as the Most High God, like we just saw. He's not some local deity, not some man-conjured coping mechanism. He's the maker of all, the ruler of all, the Lord of all, and that's the greatness we pray to every time we pray. That's our God. He is greater. Every time you pray, there is, there is a greater with us than with him. Now, let me introduce you to somebody else back in the subway. There's a, about 100 feet away from Joshua Bell playing his violin. Uh, across the arcade is a lottery line. It's usually five or six people long during the 45 minutes that Bell is playing. And they have a much better view of Bell than anybody else did if they just turned around. But no one did. Not in the entire 43 minutes. They just shuffled forward toward the machine, spitting out numbers. Eyes on the prize, the article says. Now, JT, a guy named J.T. Tillman was in that line. He's a computer specialist for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. He remembers every single number he played that day, 10 of them, $2 a piece for a total of $20. He doesn't recall what the violinist was playing, though. He says it sounded like generic classical music the kind the ship's band was playing in Titanic before it hit the iceberg. Tillman says, I didn't think nothing of it. Just a guy trying to make a couple of bucks. Tillman would have given him one or two, he said, but he spent all his cash on lotto. And when he's told by the reporter that he stiffed one of the best musicians in the world, he laughs. And he says, is he ever going to play around here again? And the reporter says, yeah, but you're going to have to pay a lot to hear him. And he says, doggone it, or the equivalent. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't win the lottery either. See, on Friday, January 12th, the people waiting in the lottery line looking for a long shot would get a lucky break, a free close-up ticket to a concert by one of the world's most famous musicians, but only if they were of a mind to take notes. And they weren't. So, don't miss it, okay? There's, there's one greater than the lottery in the room when you pray. He's the ruler of all. He's the Lord of all. He's the maker of all. Every time you pray, Hezekiah continues praying. This fabulous prayer of his, verse 16. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Now, this is anthropomorphism. Okay? God doesn't have ears and eyes. He's spirit. But what Hezekiah is doing here is he's portraying God as having attributes like us so that he can urge God to pay attention, take note, and take action. See, 
hear, as it were, the mockery and the blasphemy of this pagan king because Hezekiah knew God would not stand for this. He knew what, what God's laws back in the, in the ancient book of Leviticus taught about this kind of thing. This is Leviticus 24. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. You know, God has a really low view of being mocked and cursed. And so Hezekiah continues his prayer. Verse 17, he says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So Hezekiah acknowledged that Assyria has power, that many kings and nations and gods have fallen before them. It's true, he says before the Lord. But, he says, they were not gods. Just the work of men's hands. And now Hezekiah, he grasps, holds fast to the reality that there is a greater greatness in the room when he prays. One more guy back in the subway. This guy's name is John Piccarello. Um, he hits the top of the escalator just after Bell begins to play his final piece towards the end of the time. And in the video, if we were watching it, you would see Piccarello stop dead in his tracks. He locates the source of the music, then he retreats to the other end of the arcade, and he takes up a position past the shoeshine stand, across from the lottery line, and he will not budge for the next nine minutes while Bell plays. Like all the passers-by, he was interviewed for this article, and um, Piccarello was stopped by a reporter after he left the building and asked for his phone number. And like everyone, he was told only that this was going to be an article about commuting. And when he was called later in the day, like everyone else, he was first asked if anything unusual had happened to him on his trip to work. And of the more than 40 people contacted, Piccarello was the only one who immediately mentioned the violinist. He said there was a musician playing at the top of the escalator at L'Enfant Plaza. Haven't you seen musicians there before? Not like this one. What do you mean? This was a superb violinist. I have never heard anyone of that caliber. He was technically proficient with very good phrasing. He had a good fiddle too. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> if only you knew. With a big, lush sound. Said, I walked a distance away to hear him. I didn't want to be intrusive on his space. Really? He says, really. He says, it was that kind of experience. It was a treat. Just a brilliant, incredible way to start the day. Now, as you can imagine, Piccarello knows classical music. He's a fan of Joshua Bell, but he didn't, he didn't recognize him. Um, for most of the time, he's pretty far away. So he knew, though, that this man was not a run-of-the-mill guy out there just performing. On the video, you can see Piccarello look around him now and then almost bewildered. And he says, uh, yeah, other people just were not getting it. It just wasn't registering. So that was baffling to me. See, when Piccarello was growing up in New York, he studied violin seriously, intending to be a concert musician. But he gave it up at 18 
when he decided he'd never be good enough to make it pay. So he went into another line of work. He's a supervisor at the U.S. Postal Service. He doesn't play the violin much anymore. And when he left, Piccarello says, I humbly threw in $5. He says, it was humble. You can actually see that on the video. Piccarello walks up, barely looking at Bell, and tosses in the money. And then, as if embarrassed, he quickly walks away from the man he once wanted to be, Bell would say. See, John Piccarello got it. He recognized that there was greatness in that room, on that subway platform in D.C. on that day. And it stopped him in his tracks. He just couldn't believe that nobody else saw it. Hezekiah believes greatness is in the room when he lays that letter out before the Lord. So he asks a large ask, a request befitting a great king, even the greatest of kings. He says, so now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He pleads with God to save, not just for his sake or even just for the sake of his people, but for God's name's sake, for his reputation's sake, for the honor of his name. This should sound familiar. This is exactly how we saw Moses pray last week. That among the nations, all the nations, they might know and acknowledge the name of Yahweh as the greatest of greatness. It's a great request. The Assyrians will find out they're laying siege to Jerusalem with almost 200,000 soldiers. But to the great God, that's, that's no problem. And so after Hezekiah prays, Isaiah responds. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And then you drop down a few more verses, and we find out how the Lord responded to that prayer. It says, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, uh, you bet he did, and he went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezer, his own sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. God, God hears. God answers. The night of his prayer, 185,000 soldiers are struck down that one night. See, our God is greater. Jesus tells it this way. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God is greater. And it's underscored by the fact that Sennacherib's death happens while he's worshiping in the temple of some other God. Because our God is greater. Whenever you pray, you pray to Hezekiah's God. This God. In verse 15, the God, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, the God, the God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, 
The one who made heaven and earth, that's the God you pray to. Now that last bit of justice, you need to know, that last bit of justice where he dies in the temple of his God, that does not happen for 15 years. The full answer to Hezekiah's prayer is 15 years down the line. Sometimes God's justice and victory may seem slow to us, but you need to know when you pray that it's sure, that our God is greater and He prevails. He prevails in the lives of His children. And so we wait, and while we wait, we pray, and while we pray, we have a sure hope because greatness is in the room with us when we pray. That's our God. That's the God we pray to. And I know that's, that a number of you are facing what feels like an invasion, that your faith is being pressed to the point of almost breaking, it feels like. And so I, I want you to know that when you pray from the place that you are, that there is a God who hears your prayers and he is greater, greater than anything you are facing, any threat that's come against you. And so I want to encourage you to claim that today, to, to renew that hope and that faith in God as you pray today. And so the worship team's going to come, they're going to lead us in a closing song, and at, after the first um, stanza of that song, uh, or during that first stanza of song, I want to invite those of you who just feel a, a, a sense today that you need to cling to God's greatness in a fresh, new way. If you'd make your way down front here and you'd bow before God as a symbol of His greatness, then we'll, we'll step out of the song at that point. And a whole church is going to pray for you, for God's mercy upon you, that you would know the greatness of God in whatever you're facing. And it would give you, it would give you hope, and it would give you faith, and it would give you patience to fight the battle for as long as you need to in obedience to God. So if you'll stand with us, we'll sing together. And during this first stanza, if, if you sense God prompting you, why don't you come forward and then we'll step out of the song and we'll pray for you at that, at that point in time. So let's worship our God.